Hello, I'm Penelope Maver, and welcome to Earth Converse podcast, where we explore our relationship and conversations with the earth, all in the hope of inspiring a deeper connection with ourselves, each other, and the earth that is our home. And today I've got great pleasure to introduce Corey Wright Diley, who I last saw swinging her hips and stamping her foot in the New Mexico <laughs> desert. She really had such a big impact on me, and I really wanted her to be here. She's got so much wisdom to share. And, but wait, there's more. She is the wife of Scott, who I interviewed on uh, episode 17. And even their son, Coyote, uh, has got a little bit of a mention because he was the child playing on Ray's tree that I interviewed Ray on um, episode 14. And he was talking about the, their, their friend's <laughs> child playing on the tree. And wait, there's more. The four of them, so Corey, Scott, Ray, and Emerald, who I interviewed on episode four, she was my first one. Together, they are the Southwest Passage team and such wisdom around uh, wilderness, wilderness-based therapy, being guides, uh, therapists. And uh, so we're going to hear from Corey today, and she's tuning in from New Mexico. And I guess, I, Corey, I'm going to be linear and just sort of go, yeah, what, in terms of how has your relationship with Mother Earth and Mother Nature progressed over the years and starting maybe with your earliest childhood memories you go you know you take mm-hmm. it where you need to mm-hmm. yeah thank you good to good to be here with you it feels like a really beautiful circle coming around from that circle that we sat in oh well when I think about my relationship with the earth I was thinking about childhood memories and I definitely was raised in what many would consider a feral environment, I think. <laughs> um, where really my, my only memories inside were in deep winter. I was uh, raised mostly in northern Utah. And um, I just remember the smell of grass and lots of bee stings and lots of tree climbing and beautiful fields of grass and the wind blowing and... Um, I also have a lot of memories of the fierceness of the earth. So fires coming down. We had a fire that raged very close to our house wow. and walking to school and crazy blizzards and thinking as a child, like, have mercy, you know, <laughs> walking in these several feet drifts to, to school. And so I have really vivid memories, but I wasn't, you know, uh, raised in, in connection per se. It was just sort of, the way that we lived and um and you know i think that i was i was trying to think back of when it really began for me when i i started having conversations with the earth and it became this reciprocal relationship and it was actually halloween which we're very close to yeah um and nice i was circling back <laughs> yeah yeah so much feels like it's circling back right now from from sort of the beginning of having conversations with the earth and I'm now kind of growing into my womanhood womanhood and adulthood to where I'm able to to really share this with other people um, these conversations um, and it took lots of time to get there but yeah it was around Halloween and I I was working in wilderness therapy and I, it was a really cold night and I wanted to make some tea out of a juniper berry and juniper foliage. And, and my co-guide said, well, are you going to ask before you take from the tree? And I was like, Oh, Oh, that's a good, <laughs> that's something I should consider. And so I was like, okay. So I walked over to the tree and, you know, I said out loud and it was very strange the first time I did it, but I said, uh, may I have one of your berries and some some of your tree? I'm, I'm really cold and you're really high in vitamin C. <laughs> um, and then all of a sudden, this huge gust of wind just went, and it just, the whole tree just shook in front of me. And And so that was it for me. That was sort of the beginning where I was deeply humbled and really dropped to 
I think I actually dropped to my knees. Um, uh, yeah. But like out of respect and, and almost fear, like, wow, I'm not as powerful as I thought I was as a human. <laughs> wow, <laughs> um, yeah. This cold and wind and trees could take me at any moment. And that's, yeah. Um, and so that was really the beginning of my deeper journey of conversations. And it took me, I think, several years of maturing and into my mid-30s now to really have the courage to, um, you know, stand to have those conversations in deeper ways than just like, oh, let me tell you this story about Halloween. It was crazy, you know, mm. but like, but a really deep, profound respect where it is so and it is true um, for me, so... So that's interesting about, um, so you were a wilderness-based therapy guide for then, that experience. So was it in terms of going into wilderness guide, was it a more an outdoor intellectual experience until that moment or something? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question because you would think that a wilderness therapy guide would already have a deep and profound respect and relationship considering that's what we're using as our medicine out there, you know, pretty much. Um, but it was just so happened that I was a whitewater rafting guide in Moab, Utah, and the water ran out early and someone was like, I know a job you might like. Uh, and so I was like wilderness therapy and I did the interview and I had a very short training about how to track people and animals, <laughs> and how to make fire with, uh, you know, a bow drill and, and hand drill. And, um, and then they put me in the field with 10 really unstable human beings <laughs> and um yeah. and it was a fast and furious learning curve um but it wasn't it actually that's where my relationship grew yeah. was seeing that the um the healing for the people out there was not coming mm. you know we were there to keep them safe really yeah. um but the, the, the work that was being done was much bigger than us. Mm -hmm. um, our job was to really keep them alive, fed, mm -hmm. sheltered, mm -hmm. um, stable, you know, mentally. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah. And then that was sort of the beginning of my whole path into other wilderness therapy and psychotherapy and, um, and all the other things that, that <laughs> yeah. <they. laughs> but, and actually, because um, you did, did have done a lot of somatic work, and I actually just even your reflection on growing up in Utah, all those senses, a much must yeah. be deep in your body that, and also that range. Don't, yeah, don't skip over that because from that juniper tree shaking and probably giving you a lot of seeds in that wind, I guess. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, but I. You know, I will say, and I don't know if this is, this might be a tangent and it might not yeah, be great, totally great. related, but I, you know, I will say that from the beginning of my relationship with deeper conversations with the earth, it, it felt really overwhelming and exhausting per se to, to go from the schism in life where I was so disconnected and then so connected. Mm -hmm. um, I actually took a break from working with live people and like, um, I veered off to study biological and forensic anthropology because I wanted to work with bones and essentially um, found a deep respect and curiosity for um, dead or non-living things, our perception of dead or non-living things um, because it was so overwhelming to start this path as an adult person who had never been guided that way. Um, that I think that it was almost too much for my psyche and I needed a break. And I was like, I need to hang out with some dead people who don't <laughs> talk and, are, you know, talk about, I need to not talk about diagnoses and, um, yeah. you know, um, yeah, just the bigness of the, the earth and the conversations and how heavy it can feel. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know why it felt important to say that or if it has anything to do with this conversation. But, but it does though, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Just to, I think how overwhelming it can feel. And I think especially today in today's times and, and the question of how do we have these conversations in modern day and that that question feels 
daunting and overwhelming because it's, you know, we're in this crucial time of, of needing to address our connection um, and disconnection with the earth mm-hmm. and how she sustains us and what's happening. And I think especially living in New Mexico around so much poverty where there are mothers who just depend on WIC the WIC program and what they can get from the grocery store and food deserts and all of these things. It's like, how do we respectfully have these conversations while also um, respecting the the state of so much of humanity and that feels really daunting. How do I talk to my neighbors about this that have been growing alfalfa for a hundred years in our Valley and that's just what they do. And that's their tradition. And that's, their culture mm, mm. um yeah so yeah and being so much aware of of that pain and um and then you know we're con- constantly reminded of that pain through media or i or uh, if we just aw- awaken look around us and and that mm. responsibility of that and i just love that you listen to listen to yourself and just go this is what i need in this moment i need to yeah, hang out with dead people and just know know what we need and respecting that that bigness because mm-hmm. I think that we a lot of us won't sort of tune into that's why we how we feel we disguise it in some way mm. or brush it aside or something. Was it what you needed? Exploring anthropology in that way and absolutely, yeah. I think that it gave me a much needed um, reprieve and just break from. Uh, <laughs> the shock of coming to all my senses and uh, so many truths. How I ended up in New Mexico was doing research at UNM and having access to the bones that were in their archaeology lab. And I spent, oh, hundreds and hundreds of hours down in that old, it's like, you know, a basement that's locked and you have to have a code and they're very old, protected archaeological things and I just spent hours alone down there measuring uh, bones and teeth and uh, I I suppose it was you know a form of me maybe checking out from the heaviness that it that it felt to be in the world and it was also a really important um, thing for me to to connect with the part of me that wasn't raised to believe that we could speak to dead people or spirits or the spirit of the earth. Mm. And so for me, it was also um, this other aspect of learning how to uh, find respect in conversation with, with those things that we have been told aren't alive, you know, like the trees (laughs) or, Um, You know, my grandmother, who I deeply wanted to speak to and couldn't until I did a a fast and a ceremony. And I, I was like, oh my gosh, I can, I can speak to my grandmother and call her in. And she is the flowers and the grass and like, and so I needed to also rekindle my relationship that had been broken um, by our modern idea that we can't speak to dead things or that there is this other schism that there is the dead and there is the Mm. alive and Mm. um that's created in the bifurcation of separation of of us and the earth too i think you know thinking that like what's cutting the tree down gonna do what you know Mm. it doesn't matter it's just Mm. a tree (laughs) Mm. and so i think it was it was a break and it was also um addressing this other aspect of me that was deeply wounded of growing up as a child you know, thinking that we were separate and that we couldn't have connection to all things seemingly dead or alive, whether that be human or plant or animals or all the things. Do you remember the sort of the sense of disconnection or is it sort of a gradual thing from mm-hmm. your childhood well, or even adultness when we sort of feel disconnected? You know, I don't remember any sense of disconnection per se the majority of my memories are when I'm connected you know when I Mm. I think for some reason bee stings when I was a kid is like it's this really big memory and I think it's because we're just so brought into our body as a child with a bee sting it's like oh wow my foot is 
swelling, I would always get them from stepping on the dandelions in, in the parks or my front yard. And, um, you know, it brings us into our body and, and it really <laughs> it's that very humbling, like, oh, wow, that little tiny thing can really hurt me, you know, or um, it hurts. It's not that they want to hurt us. They're scared. Mm. But, mm. Um, but yeah, and so I, I remember moments of like, of con- very few moments of connection where I was brought into my body mm. senses immediately. But I think it's more of just feeling the pain now as an adult of how much I missed. You know, when I think about raising our son, Coyote, and, and um, I don't know if you heard recently in New Mexico, thousands and thousands of birds were dropping from the sky, dying. No. Yeah, and so we had several birds on, our, on the land dropping down. And so Coyote got to bury a lot of birds and we got to do a lot of little ceremonies and um, just, you know, talking to the birds. And, and I was just like, wow, if I had that when I was a kid... Yeah. Death would be so much less scary. Yeah. And, uh, my whole worldview would be different. Absolutely. And I, it's, that is such a gift to help him really be there with it. And yeah. You know, it, it taps into that, the death and the grief and these things that we're needing to talk about with the earth and can't. And if I had been shown and taught that it's okay to talk about death and like, oh, let's not just move past that dead bird really quickly. It's gross. Let's stop and give like real respect to um, the fact that that is might be a mother bird who has little babies in a nest that are now without food. And um, so, yeah, I think it, it taps into this bigger, how, how are we raising our children, mm-hmm. you know? to be able to have these conversations in the yeah. future about grief and death and earth and yeah. the cycle that we're all in. The lovely living and dying Meredith Little's program. Um, mm-hmm. I did it last year and she, that was the, that was, it was really beautiful here in Spain. It was oh. so, and so beautiful. And yeah, one of the question is what is your first memory of uh, death? And it was interesting, you know, how adults either sh- um, didn't talk about it, but we knew that something went on or that it was just sort of in hindsight, really clumsily done, you know, and not, or not honoring that and how that really does form us that mm-hmm. first experience. But if we can engage in it and show ceremonial, way age appropriate and all that how beautiful that is for the next generation yeah if there's one if there's one I'm not going to say if there's one thing I always say that but there's several things that (laughs) (laughs) are really important um you know to pass on to my to my son it's it's that ability to have the conversations about um death and grief and the cycle of life and why do bad things happen and why are humans doing this to the earth and why, why, you know, and he's also in his three-year-old is like, everything is why, why, why. And so we're doing a lot of explaining and death is very much up for him right now. And so we're having lots of conversations about death, but it's, it's, um, it's so true. You know, it's kind of like, like adolescence and, and puberty and what, what would it be like if our first conversation about coming into adulthood was different? Mm. Oh my gosh. You know, what if it wasn't terrifying to um, get my menstrual cycle? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. would have been lovely, you know? Yeah. And not only terrifying, how beautiful to, that it was a celebration, you know, yeah. and really embracing of that, you know, not even a, hi- a hiding of that. Charles Eisenstein did a lovely article on the coronation. He just said, you know, like COVID has brought death to the front, you know, let us, mm-hmm. let us, let us seep in it. So, yeah, where have you, where you got to with COVID <laughs> this time, you know, and this, this unique time in our lives, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's been an interesting ride because – I think that it's brought up for me. I just read this amazing book. It's now what I consider sort of my, my Bible in life. And it's 
Sowing Seeds in the Desert. And it's written by a, a Japanese uh, farmer, kind of the father of permaculture. Um, and he really addresses this idea of separateness and I think taps into the idea of human supremacy in general, thinking that we are above uh, the power of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And really rooting from this separateness. And I, um, I think what, what has become very apparent for me and been very hard to have conversations about with people is how much of that is being brought to light with COVID this mm -hmm. idea that we think we can control mm. this thing, you know, a virus that's extremely intelligent and will adapt and is really likely equalizing from, from deep wounding of the earth of, of potentially overpopulation of, of too many people in small spaces inside. Um, that's yeah. really where we're seeing that it's being spread is inside. Um, I think it's it's beautiful that the sanctuary from COVID is being outside with people. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, um, you know, for me, unfortunately, I haven't been able to talk to many people about it because there's this idea that if I, uh, if I bring up the idea of human supremacy or that we can, we think we can, you know, beat it per se. And instead of like really tapping into Ooh, this death yeah. and dying thing is so a part of life. Mm -hmm. um, then people take it as like, I'm just wishing death upon people, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, or like irresponsibly acting out. But, but I think it's really um, has the potential to, to bring great humility yeah. to humanity and conversations about, you know, the, the reality that we're in that, death is very much a part of life and we are not more intelligent than viruses. Mm. Um, I don't believe so. I don't yeah. think we are. I think that's, especially one like this, you know, there are diseases and illnesses that we've been able to beat because they kill their host faster. But the, the truth of the matter is that this doesn't kill the host as often as, as it, needs to not live on so it's mm -hmm. actually very intelligent in that way so that's definitely been up for me and it's I've had a lot of grief about how difficult it's been to have that conversation with people well that's a pride but is that in terms of amongst your community I and mean, you've got a lot you know you've got a lovely community of people that are very I don't know I would say like-minded that sounds like the <laughs> I mean that in a complimentary way you know like in terms of um if we stick with like-minded people, we don't get challenged. <laughs> if we, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. but that um, I don't know. I'm just surprised that you feel that way. That it, you haven't been able to talk about it. it yeah, there's only been I think actually like two people in my close mm -hmm. circle of friends who I've been able to have a conversation about it where somebody didn't get angry and start mm -hmm. like name calling. Um, you know that or go on a, a tangent or a rant about uh, being irresponsible. Because um, I think it is possible to like do respectful things and wear a mask around vulnerable people or wear a mask. And, mm. and also like we need to be having these conversations. Yeah. You know, it needs yeah, to be both. Um, yes. Yeah, the end, isn't it? The end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And people feel very threatened when they hear, my any idea of human supremacy <laughs> it's like um which really is what climate change is is about yeah. is this idea that we reign supreme and we don't have to bow down on our knees to what what feeds us um you know the water and the, mm. the soil and and such I heard I have one friend I was having this conversation with and it was really beautiful and he was like you know, maybe I think sometimes this is a time where we need to be holding each other closer rather than farther apart. And I think that could be taken in, in many different ways, but that really hit my heart in a big way that was like, you know, there's so many elderly people dying alone and women birthing alone. And people, I can't yeah. accept that that is a way that humanity is meant to be. I just can't. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when, and I, and I think it's, I, I, I feel like a broken record. I'm sorry. I just keep talking about this <laughs> weaving into um, the separateness and, and that we are separate, but we're literally separating people to die mm-hmm. alone because of this. And I think that that is really a wake up call about where we're at, you know, Absolutely. And, our, and our inability to have these really hard conversations because as a healthy 34 year old woman, I would so happily go be next to my grandmother and risk myself at getting COVID mm. um, so that she didn't have to die alone. Um, Absolutely. You know, like yeah. in terms of that individual choice, you know, it's the individual and the collective responsibility. But we get trapped in this sort of we have to do everything collective or, you know, we have to be separate. And actually there is a between that, there's a real mm-hmm. spectrum of people choosing, you know, mm-hmm. in a really compassionate way. And Yeah. Well, that philosopher, I want to, I, you know, I don't want to say his name wrong. It's a Japanese yeah, yeah. name. Uh, Masanobu Fukuoka. But he really talks to you. I love the book because he was a biologist and came from a very scientific background. Mm. My father is a is a PhD organic chemist. And so I was raised with the idea that science is the end all be all, <laughs> um, the only truth and the light. And, um, and wow, you know, that's another thing that really blew my mind. But this writer he talks about how there is, there is a place for human intervention. And there is also a place of profound respect of just being in true nature and being true nature and respecting the cycle that it is. And he talks about um, this beautiful story, the pine tree beetles. Basically it was that this human intervention has been much more detrimental to the trees. So they were actually, saving they were growing this fungus that was saving themselves and then we intervened and did the beetles and we have killed off millions of trees because of our our need to intervene and think that we have the answer and so he does a really beautiful job talking about modern science and how there is a place for western medicine and also there's a place for these conversations with with nature and and earth having to come to a place of acceptance. Observe it, you know, observe with great attention and care and holding, you know, suspending belief and not not imposing our, our view, our way of thinking, but just surrendering to that. Yeah, he's all about, um, you know, the idea of permaculture is that you live someplace for at least a year and you don't do anything but listen. Mm. Um, and watch and you watch what is the pattern of the runoff what is where do the birds live where is the soil growing well what wild plants are there and it isn't until we really sit and watch um, that we know what then to do with the land in best practices for growing food and where to build and um, yeah it doesn't necessarily work if you think about our our old (laughs) nomadic cultures where you're like we just need shelter and food right now because the snowstorm's coming Um, so you know we have to take it with that grain of salt that it's sort of a modern adaptation to where humans are but but it's the best one that I've found Mm. so far thinking about it like a in a company like a, a new chief executive comes in imagine them being taking that approach and for a year just listening as opposed to, you know, it's always like 90 days, you know, 90 days as, as a new chief executive, what am I going to change? You know, going in, going, I need to be different from my predecessor, you know, but imagine that if we took yeah. that approach and if that was a, allowed in terms of the shareholders and the stakeholders and just a beautiful process of yeah. observing, listening, seeing other, you know, seeing the potential in people and seeing their own patterns and how they problem solve and, take responsibility yeah yeah maybe something it would be it would be really amazing and I think um (laughs) mind-blowing yeah I mean one of my one of my supervisors I think one of the the best things I've ever been told one of the most simple pieces of advice in in therapeutic work um is this idea to always ask one more question. So always just come with this deep curiosity 
So never assuming anything, but ask one more question. And when I can actually keep myself calm enough to do that, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I usually discover um, something so raw and beautiful that lies under, um, you know, the deep, the anger or the resentment or whatever there is. Um, and I think that's one of the most valuable pieces of wisdom, wisdom I've ever been given is to ask one more question. And I think it's, it's uh, works on all spectrums of mm. life, you know, to ask, mm. there's always a place for, you know, sticking your stake in the ground and making yeah. your place known. But, you know, I think it's also, there's always the end and, yeah. and, uh, so yeah, asking yeah. one more question of yeah. the land and of other people. Yeah, and going back to your, you know, your COVID conversation. Imagine if you know, to, for us to do that rather than go in with the with the opinion. You know, we can have a stake, but the what is the what is the question and opening up and dropping down beyond that anxiety because humans have run around with our tense muscles anyway, and this is just supersized mm-hmm. COVID, isn't it? Because that death mm-hmm. has come come closer and we've got financial pressures and you know and uh, societal pressures but mm-hmm. to go beyond, beyond that what would the yeah the question be mm-hmm. yeah well do you feel hopeful about you know the collective <laughs> <laughs> oh uh you've got elections coming up and all that do I go yeah you know I'm going to be really honest with you I don't per se. Um, and I have a tattoo on my back in Spanish that says hope, faith, and courage from, from when I was 18. And I was a traveling missionary actually to Mexico. Um, and, and I think about that story sometimes coyote always rubs that tattoo and and there's a mole there and he's obsessed with he's It's a comforting thing to him. And so it's interesting. He's constantly rubbing that tattoo that, that says hope. Um, and you know, I've often prescribed to the idea that like, what is life without some sense of hope or um, faith? And um, I think it's, you know, for me, the election is going to be really big because I do think that people are making a choice to either deeply care about the earth or not. Mm-hmm. To me, it's very simple. <laughs> and beyond that, you know, all the humanitarian things don't matter if we don't have clean water and our children don't have beautiful places to see flowers and trees. And, you know, they're dependent on the government for eating their food. But um, I'm going to have to really decide on how I am in the world after that, mm-hmm. after the election. And um, where to go from there and how to be active in the community and in my beliefs. And we'll see. I'm, do you feel hopeful? I'm curious. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I do. I think in terms of, I don't know about, I think that I love Ray's paper about annihilation. You know, I think, you know, ultimately we're going to, mm-hmm. the human race won't be here. I think nature will be fine mm-hmm. in some way. Um, sort of or more immediate, I think there is dancing with the dark and the light, but I do see a rise in consciousness. Do I choose to see it and feel it? Um, and conscious, consciousness doesn't always make us happy, but so it's, there's, there's more probably darkness or depth or the conversations we need to have. But I think I, I do. I've, and it's sort of like a, a little bit of Winston Churchill, you know, I'm an optimist. What, what other choice have we got? You know, and it's not Pollyanna hope. I think it's sort of hope that, like, well, action, like, just what even you said. You know, what? How am I going to be in the world? You know, what is my what is my um, role in community? What does my activism look like? Mm-hmm. It's the old Zen thing, isn't it? You know, given this, now what? You know, mm-hmm. at any moment, mm-hmm. what do we do? You've you've got a child. I mean, you know, like it's the greatest act of hope there is, isn't there? To br- mm-hmm. to bring a child in the world, you know, fundamentally, you do. You are hopeful. Mm. Yeah. Well, you raise a couple of really good points, and it it, it really, for me, hit home when you said um, that nature will go on and the earth will go on, and that's actually what I feel the greatest amount of comfort in. 
is that no matter yeah. what us humans do, like the earth is going to, is going to go on. And it's, and, and, you know, that's what I hold, I think some of the deepest grief about is just, um, the state of the planet, but, but also, um, I do feel like if I didn't have any children, it would, it would potentially be different for me. Mm. Um, because I so deeply want him to see the beauty that I was able to see. Um, and I already see that changing, but it's also my responsibility as a mother to, to show him the beauty where, where it is. Right. Like it's not, um, they already come with these curious eyes and hearts and, um, you know, that will dwindle away as they grow up and responsibilities come in. Um, but it's, (laughs) um, you know, in fact, the fact that we have another one on the way is oh, like. Dear. I oh, didn't know that. Oh, God. <laughs> you are hopeful. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. I thought I was trying to remember if we had told you because I haven't actually yeah, told yeah, anybody yeah. except close. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like. I, can I, should I say this? The, the podcast is going to be very public, but you know, whatever. Um, oh, well, we can time the podcast to when you want to, uh, to do that. So, yeah. Oh, lovely. Oh, it's, it's okay. Yeah. So we have another one. We're expecting uh, Coyote to hopefully be a sibling on around May 2nd. And Scott and I really, I think we both really struggle with, with the grief in the state of the world. We, it manifests in totally different ways. It's very interesting being in a relationship with someone who grieves so differently. <laughs> um, but with that said, I, I, I was very surprised when he, he sort of made the conscious decision to, to say, okay, well, n- n- let's have another kid. And I was like, but you're in such deep grief. And, so, and I, and one of my first thoughts was he does have hope. He does. And he does. <laughs> so you're really, you're really tuned in Penelope. You really, you know, you nailed it in terms of children sort of being like the ultimate act of hope and what they bring to the world is just, Oh, the profanity that they bring mm-hmm. is so refreshing. Um, it's you know when we get so steeped in our adult minds of thinking and intellectualizing and all these things they just you know they're like you know accidentally their pants and and yeah um poo and and you're like and you go from being in grief to like well I'm gonna wipe your butt now okay that's this is this is life and (laughs) um you know they're the little they're the little you know, people running around ceremonies. I just had a couple of women, dear, dear sister friends come down and try to do a land blessing for the land that we're now officially stewards of. Mm, Um, And yeah, and they, you know, trying to do ceremony. My friend has a, I think she's 16 months and, and then coyote and Scott was actually out on the land fasting. And, um, and it was quite hilarious to try to do a ceremony with children running around and just the reminder of, of what the importance of their place mm-hmm. in this world that what would we all do if we were just adults talking about <laughs> stuff, you know, it would be <laughs> terrible. <laughs> but they are the ceremony. Everything happens, isn't it? Everything that's happening is, is the ceremony. And didn't yeah. Meredith and Steve talk about sacred and the profane or it's, embracing it all? Yeah, it's one of the most important things for me in life. I think it's one of the the best things that Emerald ever brought into my life as as an example of a woman who like I, you know, I had been in years steeped in these traditions of yoga and Zen meditation where it was like you be quiet and you sit and you do these things and and Emerald was the first woman that gave me full permission. <laughs> you were there. She was like, you know, you can rage and you can yell and you you can, yeah, you know, and, um, all these things. And was the first time someone, anyone ever told me I, I could pull a rapist out of my body by myself, by the power of the, the great mother that I'm a part of. And, 
and I did it. You know, it, it was like, yeah. And it was yeah. the profanity that brought me back to life that mm. just, oh, I was like, you know, and, and, um, gave me such a better balance an idea of what the world like really is. Mm. Um, so I'm a big fan of the sacred and profane and especially the profane lately. I, <laughs> anyone who knows me knows that I'm a very, I have a lot of profanity in my life. The filter is dwindling down. Very <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's all, it's important. Wow. I, I really enjoy having conversations with people where everything is sacred. I'm like, you obviously haven't worked in a refugee camp um, or in a jail or somewhere where they're like the profanity runs ones deeper than uh, just the jokes that we talk about, you know, <laughs> it's, and it's very much a part of life that we need to. Yeah. Hold. Yeah. Yeah. I do, um, you know, get the real impression, you know, your integrated self. I know you in terms of that, um, you know, it's that ongoing journey, but a real conscious effort to, bring all your potentials, you know, and really even, you know, motherhood, when I knew you, it wasn't, was it, were you even thinking about it because of health reasons, what, you know, it wasn't going to be an option. It's just sort of like, no, I'm that and love, you know, like it just embracing it all and your incredible curiosity and your studying and your trying different things. And I don't know, I don't know it's, is there a question in that? I'm not too sure, but just your integrated, your journey of, towards wholeness or your full potential. Yeah, a question per se, but uh, you know, I will put out there that I didn't, I don't, I feel like I'm just starting to tap into uh, like a real mature ability to, to be in the world and, and give any gift of, of my experience. Like I know that, that I did before just being able to like sit with people and, and be present and, and do the things I've been very blessed to do. But, um, I think there's something really powerful in womanhood with the, you know, um, maybe starting in the mid thirties. I don't know yet because I'm not past there, but something that happens midlife that's really powerful and really deep. And I always tell my friends, I can't wait to be 40. (laughs) I feel like that's when life is really gonna start, you know, beginning for me in terms of being able to offer the, the the wholeness of the experience that I've been through because I don't know for some reason in my mind I feel like that's sort of a magic age right now and so (laughs) I think you're just you're just seeing and witnessing the beginning of me coming into a a better ability to have perspective on my my life as a whole it Mm. just it just comes with time and consciousness I think so where are you at with, with your wilderness-based work or working with people and, and using nature as both the, the source and the healer and the stakeholder and, and all her wisdom? <laughs> yeah, it's been, uh, it's been quite the journey. So I had, I had my own huge healing experience that, Kate, you know, I was a wilderness therapy guide and that was sort of my my main lens that I drew from, you know, that was sort of it. And then I had my experience out on the land of, of healing from, you know, one big sexual assault and really other ones too, that, that commonly occur in women's lives. And, um, and at the same time, I was also introduced to somatic experiencing and the whole premise of somatic experiencing, um, it's a trauma training institute and kind of the idea is that we work with our nervous system in treating us like we are uh, mammals. We're just, we're mammals. And so the, the natural processes that happen with animals out in the wild in the fight, flight and freeze are very much what we go through as, you know, as humans and healing from trauma. And so of course I was, very drawn to it because it helped me tremendously in my own healing. Mm. Um, you know, again, it was having permission to shake and to rage and to feel these things that other therapists were like, Oh, that's not safe. Don't, 
don't do that, you know? <laughs> um, and so it was this beautiful combination of going out on the land and, and, and healing through the mother and empowerment of another woman and somatic experiencing. Um, and that launched it. I got real clarity that I wanted to go to graduate school to get my master's in somatic psychotherapy and do the SE training, um, which Scott and I did together over a few years. And, um, and so then in that process, I realized, wow, it's a very white Western lens that I'm working through. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, and I, you know, after working so many years in wilderness therapy and working with very wealthy white people, mostly, I wanted to, to do something very different because I'd actually grown up doing a lot of work in, in Mexico and, and traveling to other places and knew that there was so much more to life that hadn't really pursued it. Um, outside of my white lens, you know, I, I lived in India and, and studied yoga and all that, but it was like very much the young yeah. white girl that just went and did that. Um, <laughs> so, um, and so then I was launched after graduate school into really working with uh, parts of the population in New Mexico, I, I have made up my own language and I call them the invisible people mm. um, because everyone has this really romantic idea of New Mexico that it's like, uh, it's just romantic. It's Georgia O'Keeffe. It's, mm. it's first nations people. It's mm. native American. It's um, and what people don't realize that the, is that we are uh, in the deepest poverty <laughs> You know, we're either number one or number 50 in everything is kind of our joke here. Um, uh, I think we might be last in education. So, so I started to work at the Santa Fe Mountain Center with these populations that, um, you know, I just didn't get to come in contact with. And it's, it's been a, a, a eye-opening journey. So I, I did that and worked a lot with, um, Native peoples and inpatient addiction um, facilities, and we did adventure therapy, so ropes courses and things like that. And then I was like, I want to go deeper than this, you know, because it's still adventure therapy. And so I started working um, at women's shelters and um, uh, a sexual assault survivor uh, crisis center and um, also in jails. And I began to really see that, uh, wow, like, how do I, I can't use the same language here, mm -hmm. um, in these places because these people are in the ultimate place of survival mm. all the time that the other populations, um, you know, mostly white people are not. So I couldn't just go into a jail and do work with people <laughs> and then, um, you know, put them back in to their cell where they are, in a place of deep survival um, or women coming through shelters who are, have no idea where their next meal is going to come from, yeah. who are sitting across from me with black eyes, you know, it's like a two di completely different worlds. And so I've really been asking myself the question, how to bring nature into this work and social justice in respecting all walks of life and where they come from. And it's been a really hard one. Mm. Um, I lost my job due to COVID at the, the rape crisis center that I was working at, uh, where I worked with crimes of our uh, um, survivors of violent crime and domestic violence and sexual assault. And it's been a good break for me, I would say, to really reevaluate. Because um, there's a part of me that believes in social justice and, and giving services to those mm -hmm. people. And there's also another part of me that just really deeply believes that wilderness is nature is um, the best salve and the best medicine. So I've found little ways to weave in an agency work, you know, in the jail, mm -hmm. when we would do orienting, I would find the one tiny window at the top mm -hmm. of the jail and they would just look at the sunlight coming through for mm -hmm. five minutes and they would just be like, wow, you know, Mm. I haven't seen sunlight in days mm. 
or we would make, I would make a request to go out into the rec recreation area where sometimes you could see some of the sky Mm. through the gate and we would just look at the clouds and we wouldn't do much talking. Um, We would just, you know, sit together and see what came up. And so I've had to really shift what my idea of that work is. And I think more recently I have come to the realization that the most honest way for me to do this work is through the land. And so I'm living, I'm in that question right now. And I think it's very appropriate for my age, (laughs) kind of like I was speaking about, you know, coming into these years where I'm closing the gap into 40 and will really come into the place of knowing my, my place with this work. Um, All I really know, you know, I am still, I'm going to, I have a small private practice and I'm going to be starting and I'll do everything I can to incorporate nature in the most respectful way possible. And we'll be sort of dreaming and thinking and envisioning about how to bring women on the land that we have um, to come together, um, specifically sexual assault survivors and domestic violence um, to heal in a group through, through the land and through ceremony and that feels most authentic to, yeah. to what I believe in and, and who yeah. I am. And, and what you've experienced. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I also don't want to be the white savior that want, you know, feels like, <laughs> me, but yeah, like I have to go work in the jails in these yeah. places because mm-hmm. they need my help. Yeah. And yes, the services are needed. But if I'm sitting and thinking about how the land needs to help this person, there's a disconnect there. It's not yeah. appropriate. Yeah. I'm also, I'm, I'm teaching a couple of courses in a, a social work. Oh, graduate. great. Yeah. And that's been great because I feel like I can really offer my experience in all of these realms um, to students who are going into the world. And I almost feel like that's one of the most appropriate ways yeah. that I can really like be in the world in a way as I can just offer well this is what I did or this is what uh this might look like and this is how you could and we just sort of like talk about ideas about how to bring nature and um the outdoors into these people's lives and that feels really good lovely that's a lovely contribution because you are inspiring in that and and how you articulate concepts and ideas and I can imagine the real yeah a lovely role in that and and I also, in terms of introducing people to nature, you, you're sort of getting out of the way. It's sort of like re, helping them to see the sun or the clouds or come into the land but, and stepping away. But it's sort of the, the gentle, like, this may help you heal or this may. Yeah. Well, you know, it's inter- I just had a conversation with a student about this the other day, about how important it is for us as therapists not to actually introduce the nature per se but for us to maybe so there's there's two ways of of, that I tend to do it and there's one and that's when I ask anyone to orient to something that they see in the room that brings them peace Mm, it is almost always a bird a tree the sunlight I mean it I want to say like 90% of the time It's a very naturally occurring process. And so I just simply ask people, find something that's beautiful or comforting. Mm. Um, And then the other way is to, you know, be really respectful and say, do you have a relationship with, with the earth? Do you go outside much? Do you, and sort of like ask those questions. And I take the lead of the the person because Mm. some people are, you know, I've worked with people who did cross the desert and walk mm. miles and miles mm. and the wilderness is threatening. You know, they, mm. they had to actually survive it mm. in a different mm. way that, that yes. we did. Yeah. So yeah. really important to ask one more question and mm. be curious mm. and find people's relationship with the earth. Yeah. Um, it's our ethical responsibility right. to introduce it as something instantly beautiful. Although that's my perception. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So, so nice yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, there's, there's a couple of different ways that it can be brought in either naturally by asking a question or, you know, respectfully asking what their relationship is. And then I've noticed that people who have a relationship with the earth 
we drop in deeper and quicker than other people because then the the pressure is put off of us mm-hmm. <laughs> as this this dynamic of two people healing. Mm-hmm. It then becomes something much bigger than us, mm-hmm. um, and the responsibility is not ours. And mm-hmm. so that's really beautiful and nice. That's lovely. Have you come with, with people that say they don't feel like they've got a relationship? Do they, upon the next question, you, they discover they do or remember it or see it in a different way? Yeah. I mean, I definitely have had people who are like, I hate camping. I hate being outside. I hate, you know, <laughs> um, and, you know, I might, I might just gently bring in like, well, there's, there's been a lot of really great research recently about PTSD and putting our hands in the soil mm-hmm. and the chemical reactions that happen. So I, I, I tend to tap into science because otherwise I'll probably be seen as some crazy hippie, you know, <laughs> that's like, <laughs> doesn't have any grounding on what she's saying. Um, and so I might do that or I might just let it go, you know, and I don't, I don't push it yeah. because one day it will naturally happen. Mm. It, naturally. it will. That's yeah. <laughs> true. <Naturally>. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I'll it just works. keep, I'm just going to keep asking them to orient or I'll say, let's do a session outside or let's go on a walk or let's, um, you know, we'll just be outside when it's very comfortable and a good temperature and, <laughs> mm. So it requires not having an agenda, you yeah. know, for sure. But yeah. I get, I've gotten those people. It's rare, but I get them. Yeah, yeah. And then going, I suppose, the somatic thing is, or the sensations more so than in terms of feeling the the sun mm-hmm. on your on your skin or the breeze or, yeah. Mm-hmm. So and what would be another question that you would like to be asked, not necessarily answered? What would you like me to ask you? That's a good question. I can't. I think another way of saying that is like yeah. what feels most important to me. Yeah, <laughs> like, great. You know. um, yeah, I, I think I think it would. It's not so much a question, but just like a plea for people to hear that there are ways to have these conversations that aren't pulling people apart. Um, it must be, you know, coming from a place of being grounded. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think there's also that. And then there's this other part of me that's chiming in and saying, and there's a place to also really fiercely take a stand right right now for the earth and the planet and, uh, women, I think, especially, Mm. um, and to not be scared scared to take that stand to have conversations and and take that stand um so i think i just said two kind of different things but i think both are possible i think, I think uh, yes. that's what i'm yeah i think they're both the they're both the end you the stake, mm-hmm. take the stand and and know there's an opening up there's an opening up mm-hmm. of that conversation isn't it it's the it's the listening it's the questioning it's that dance of like yeah and stepping into the power, stepping into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that now, now is the time before it's too late for the next several generations mm. to, to really take a stand um, and have these conversations. And I'm doing, I'm, I'm working on that myself, you know, with my own parents. Mm. How do I have these conversations about, um, my deep love for the earth and how voting does make a difference. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's where it starts, isn't it? The family, the family bits. Yeah. <laughs> bits yeah. Conversations to start. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think if I were to end with one thing, it would be to tell people that you're not alone, <laughs> that we all feel so isolated right now. Um, and I think are dealing with some form of grief or underlying depression or deep questions about our life and the way that we're mm-hmm. living. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, their people are freaking out right now. Mm-hmm. But I would just, you know, let everyone know that you're not, you're not alone. And I'm happy to have these conversations with anyone at any time yeah, if you'd right. like. 
Great. And I'm going to put a link in. I'm going to put a link into your details. And that, that, yeah, that's an invitation to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the world needs to hear more, more from you. And you too. Mm-hmm. Thank you for thank you for doing this and having the courage to have a podcast where it's like, yeah, we're conversing with the earth. That's you know about and to and with yeah. and each other. And I I so deeply appreciate what you're doing with yeah. this. And I, yeah, lovely to see you. So we'll put a pause there and see you back for the next Earth Converse podcast. In the meantime, go out and enjoy Earth one conversation at a time. <laughs>